This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Remember the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet in chapter 3, verse 2? O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. Well, the Old Testament shows us a cycle of faithfulness to the Lord, followed by decline and apostasy, then repentance and a return to faithfulness to the Lord. And as Christians, we see that same cycle occurring in our own churches and in our own lives. How do we return to our first love, Jesus, and pursue him for the purpose of seeing him revive our hearts? Well, joining us today is Dr. Tom Phillips, Vice President of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and author of the book we'll be discussing. Really important subject. It is called Ignite Your Passion for Jesus, Your Guide to Experience Personal Revival. It's great to have you with us, Tom. How are you doing? Very good, Janet. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity of sharing about our heart revival. I love this. Well, you note that when we think of revival, and I think you're right, we think of the big outdoor stadium events, the tent meetings. How do you think we really need to think about revival, where it starts, and how God brings it about? That's a very good question. Our concept, our concept today is a really, it sounds negative, but it's not. It's a degenerative concept that came from the great movements of God in our country in the past, and uh, after the movements of God, especially in the 1800s, uh, whenever this nation was fledgling and uh, the movement of God broke out that brought about a third of our nation to the Lord, um, we began to try to organize what God had done at that time. And actually, because we prayed so much, God began to move in the communities. But over time, it became programmatic. So even what we do at the Villagram Evangelistic Association was called revivals at times, but Billy Graham knew better. He said, I'm praying, I'm praying, this was 1949, he prayed it all the way until his death. I am praying for an old-fashioned, Holy Ghost, heaven-sent revival that will sweep America from coast to coast. Amen. And a revival is nothing but ordinary Christianity. So what Mr. Graham was really praying for was a re- renewed, awakened, restored, reset church of the Lord Jesus Christ And then when the Church of God is awakened, the results that come from that breed such a joyous church that the uncommitted people look and say, I want what God has done in that person's life, and that's how the revival spreads in great witnessing. Well, you're right about that, and that's such a challenge to us. And I think of what the Lord Jesus said to those seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and I think in particular of Laodicea. That's often mentioned by a lot of Christians today. Boy, we are just like the church of Laodicea. We're not cold. We're not hot. And the Lord says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Do you believe that we're in a position similar to that of Laodicea or some of the other churches that the Lord rebukes and chastens and encourages also in Revelation 2 and 3? 
I absolutely do. We actually see a deadness in our churches today. It's a lot like the prodigal son that went away from his father. He never changed from being the son of the father, but he turned his back on the father and wasted a lot of resources, ignored the father's teaching. But one day, one day, he said, I must go home. And as he turned from the pigsty in his filthiness and his emaciated body, he did not know, but his father, as the Heavenly Father always does, had been going to the little hillside by his house every day, looking down the road, watching for the son to come home. Mm -hmm. And one day he sees this bent figure, thin, similar to what he had seen Lee, but not with the great fondness for adventure. Now he's coming home to the God who loves him. And when the daddy wrapped his arms around the son, he said this, for this my son was dead. Now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And that word in the New Testament, alive again, is anazeo, revival, to bring back to life that which is comatose, dead, or asleep, the son was still the son, but now he's come back to that ordinary relationship of father-son that's intimate. And that's what the church is, is actually underway doing right now, and especially among young people that I meet. Great. You're right. That That's a really good you know, passage to bring up because that's such an analogous passage for where we are. How do you think we should think about a revived disciple of Jesus Christ? Because even if you've been a Christian for years, it is easy to fall into sin. It's easy to fall, you know, fall into apathy, spiritual apathy. But to be alive in Jesus Christ, a revived disciple who is empowered by the Holy Spirit, what does that kind of disciple look like? Well, actually, Janet, that's why we wrote the book. This book is nothing but a guide or a handbook to a daily intimacy with Jesus Christ, which is a pilgrimage in personal revival. So that person realizes that the time is now. It's a lifestyle. And normally it begins in a brokenness. It may be broken because you realize the goodness of God and it's led you to repentance. It may come from a crisis in your life. But as you become intimate with Jesus, as already a born-again Christian, you become intimate again, much like when you were first converted. Joy becomes real in the midst of true repentance. Yes. So for me, I pray for conviction. God, conviction just simply means, Janet, to see as God sees. God, I want to see myself as you see me. And then confession. Anything in my life that does not agree with you, God, I agree with you that it's bad, and I want it out. Right. And then repentance is not just turning from sin, it's turning to God. So that foundation of obedience builds a relationship through communication, which is called prayer. And that's nothing but, as Paul said, that I might know him, that's just knowing Jesus, not about Jesus, knowing him as a person. And then out of that comes your gifts, because God says, okay, you can serve me now, And one of that is you're driven to the Word of God to learn more about Jesus, and then you want others to know this Savior, and then out of that comes what we call witnessing. And in a time of real revival, that becomes explosive, and that in turn changes one heart at a time a nation. Hmm. 
I love that. I wish we could go down all of those things, each and every person in the United States and throughout the world. You know, when you're talking about beginning with brokenness, that's so important. And I, I really kind of hone in on what you said. When you pray for conviction, I think that's excellent because there are a lot of people who might admit, oh, I sin, I do wrong things. I don't always have the right motivations. Yes, I've had bad thoughts, things like that. But there's a big difference between knowing that you're a sinner and then having the conviction of the Holy Spirit that knowing what your sin is should lead, as you said, to confession and then repentance, which is, as you said, turning to God. Those are really vital points in this whole thing, aren't they? They truly are. In the Old Testament especially, we didn't know the grace and mercy that came from the cross that overcame sin and death. So when sin was rampant, there was always a sacrifice involved. But one day, God said, the sac- God the Father said, the sacrifices that I see my people doing are not enough. Hmm. Uh, there has to be bloodshed, certainly, but it's not enough. We need an eternal sacrifice. And Jesus said, Daddy, I'll go. And when we look in the mirror of our own conviction and see that Holy Lord, Jesus Christ himself, standing before us, that brings a brokenness over our own sin. And that's why the Bible says in Romans 2, 4, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Yes. When God's kindness and love toward Tom Phillips is seen in light of Tom's sin, I don't have to get an animal and sacrifice it. I can't put Jesus back on the cross and don't have to, because sin and death has already been defeated. And generously, God pours out His Spirit on His kids and says, your adequacy is not because of you. It's because of my son. Exactly. That's exactly right. And no matter how long you're a Christian, we always have to go back to that truth. Because I think this is what sometimes leads us into spiritual apathy, where I always understand, you know, that I'm a sinner and I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And here I am. I'm a Christian. Why do I feel like I'm so far from the Lord? Well, something else I want to get into is talking about the importance of returning to God's word as well. Dr. Tom Phillips with us. We're going to come back right after this break. His book is called Ignite Your Passion for Jesus. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. The UN has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of 100 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499. 888-247-5499. Or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? 
Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to be talking to Dr. Tom Phillips. He is vice president of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and author of the book we're talking about, which is called Ignite Your Passion for Jesus, Your Guide to Experience Personal Revival. And that really has been, I'll tell you, it's interesting, Tom, your book came at a perfect time because this has been so much on my mind. I think because I'm looking at what's going on in the church right now. I'm looking at what's going on in society right now. And I have to say, at least in my lifetime, I have never seen a time in the United United States so much as right now where I say, Lord, if you don't intervene, we are sunk. Do you feel a little like that at this period in history? I do. Billy Graham said, um, this was, gosh, uh, probably 12 years ago, America has gone down the wrong road a long way. Yes. And that's true. We've never seen such spiritual darkness cover the land. We've never seen such corruption, lying, deceit, accepted. But you know, Janet, the light always shines best in the deepest darkness. Amen. And always light follows the night. The Bible's very clear in Isaiah 60. Darkness as black as night covers all the nations, but the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. That's why in Ezekiel 36 and 37, before the dry bones piece, where God says, you, you think I'm coming back, to speak to you and to change you for you, but I'm not. My children, I love you, but I'm coming back that I would get the glory. I am God Almighty. I want people to know who I am. And even when Moses is standing before Pharaoh, God then speaks to Moses and says, I will do this, not because I want to even bring freedom to my children only. I want people to know who I am. The Bible's very clear. God is love. And God promises us when it's the darkest and it's beyond our ability to overcome and have victory, he says, uh, arise, Jerusalem. And he has to give us the strength to do that. Arise, kids. Let your light shine for all to see, for the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. So we're nothing but the moon reflecting the sun. Hmm. We're a reflection of the love of God. Great. That's so great. Well, and in the history of revivals, as you well know, and you talk about this in the book, we have seen dark times followed by revival. I know you mentioned, for example, the Holy Club, the beginnings of Methodism, Charles Wesley, and, and those students who, who ignited you know the, this fuel of fire that turned into the Methodist movement. But, you know, this all has to go back to the foundation of God's Word. And when you were talking about repentance and turning to God, we can't know who God is or what He expects of us apart from the Bible. And it kind of concerns me. I shouldn't even say kind of, but you look at some of these statistics on Bible illiteracy, even within our churches, and it seems that's also something that we desperately need to recapture is our own passion for God's Word. 
That's absolutely true. I spoke to Nick Hall this morning, the president of Mission America, and uh, this is the year of the Bible, sponsored by them. And he told me 150 nations are now involved in this year as the year of the Bible. I spoke to a board member about two months ago who's on the Southern Baptist Convention Board in Florida, and they're calling for this to be the year of the Bible. Why? Because the Word of God is the Word of God. Yes. And the principles in it work. It's the Creator's guide to the best life possible. It's not just do's and don'ts. It's His love book to us. And in the history of the Bible, the results are always this. When God's kids get right with Him, the first thing that happens always is a return. Once Jesus is acknowledged as Lord and Savior, a return to Scripture. Yes, right. And the second thing, because you want to know Jesus better, you get in the Word every day, which ends up being a return to the devotional life. And the third thing that happens, okay, I know Him, now I know His Word, I want to tell others that's a growth in witnessing, and that's what breeds the joy, and it's the joy that's the magnet from the unsaved person, uncommitted person, secular person, looking into the church, calling us bigoted, intolerant. Now they say, oh, I see, and I want to be like that. Yeah. Those things do I want go together. to have that joy. They do go together. Yeah, for sure. What What do you think ought to be occurring, Tom, in our pulpits, in our churches, in our Sunday school classes to help facilitate a return to God's Word, really digging into it, not just taking one verse and looking at a verse quickly before you jump in the carpool line, but but really studying the Word of God and, and delving deeply into the truths of God's Word that can transform us? Well, obviously, there's a discipline involved. And even as a young kid, when my Southern Baptist pastor would say to us, you've got to read through the Bible in a year, and oh, to a 13-year-old, that sounds like, oh, (laughs) so laborious. And so, okay, you get this little American Bible Society guide, and you you miss one day, so now you've got to do two days tomorrow, and you miss another day, then you've got to do three days. But I found that if I would do this, this Word of God is alive, and the Holy Spirit is the teacher, and it, He changes you. But that then leads you to communicate with the Father, because it's not a book about Him, it's His book. <laughs> and Matthew Henry once said, when God intends great mercy for His people, He, God, first of all, sets them a-praying. And A.T. Pearson said, there's never been a movement of God that wasn't preceded by a concerted, united, persistent, prevailing prayer or communication with God. And it's the Word of God that engenders the prayer, and those two together then makes a new person called Tom Phillips, who is inadequate in himself, but adequate in the Savior. That's fantastic. Oh, all those things are so vital. What about the, the depth of our relationship when you have your title here, Ignite Your Passion for Jesus? This is something that I sometimes hear Christians wrestling with a little bit. Well, do I have to feel up all the time? Do I have to feel passionate all the time in order to be right with the Lord? What does it really mean to have passion for the Lord Jesus Christ on an ongoing basis? Well, it's really a matter of faith. The word faith is something I don't even quite comprehend because it's a measure of things hoped for, things not seen. Yes. So every day, out of conviction, I get up and say, okay, Daddy, I'm going to take account of yesterday, and anything that I omitted to do, I'm going to correct today. Anything I committed that was wrong, I'm going to ask you to forgive me. And if I hurt someone, I'm going to go back to them. Now, Daddy, my day is yours by faith, and I'm going to be in your will all day today because I give my life to you. That doesn't mean I'm going to feel it. It's yeah. my faith. Yeah. 
And then as I go through the day, I am utterly convinced by faith that it's his day, and the passion comes from the reality of knowing my father has me. He won't drop me, but if I drop myself, just like driving down a four-lane, I can come to the cloverleaf, conviction, confession, repentance, spin-off, come right back on as, a, as utterly committed to him as I was that morning. I might have missed a little bit of time, but I haven't messed up the whole day, even though I messed up. Right, right. And so this is a matter of faith, the evidence of things not seen. And so passion, it comes from obedience and belief in him. It's not necessarily always feelings, but when it is feelings, it's more than happiness, because that's about happenings. It's about joy, and that's a relationship with someone who'll never let you go. That's why the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Wonderful. Well, you know, I think of Ephesians 4, where it talks about the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And you talk about the issue of gifts. Christ himself gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists, etc., to equip his people for works of service. And this is all for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. Do you think that we have neglected talking enough about the individual spiritual gifts that each of us have been given when we came to know Jesus Christ? Because there was a time, I know even 2013, 30 years ago, it was more of a subject that came up, it seems, uh, you know, anecdotally. What's your gift? What's your spiritual gift? How important is it to restore that discussion and to discover your own spiritual gifts so you can employ them in the work of Jesus Christ? I think what we've done, I remember those times when we were all into gifts. How many are there? 18, 21? Which yeah. ones do I have? <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and once we knew what they were, we wanted to walk in Jesus in those gifts which is a stewardship issue, but to me it became mechanical as I saw the church try to programmatically say, okay, here's a test, take the test, these are your gifts, now you own them. No, you don't. Right. He owns you. Amen. Those gifts are a stewardship issue. It's like you've got a bank account, but you don't own it. You're, let it, you're allowed to use the money in it because your father owns it. And when we look at the people today, church-wise or unchurch-wise, we are so divided. But God promises us in Ephesians, where you were, that in the fullness of time, which I believe is now, in the fullness of time, He, God, will gather together all people into Christ. And that's a revival. It starts with the church, and then it awakens the lost. And the Bible tells us very clearly, no one, when he's lit a lamp, covers it. And all of us have these gifts, and Jesus said to them, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the gifts are about letting his light shine through us. We do not own God. Yes. He owns us. That's right. That's right. A good reminder. A good reminder. And I think this whole issue of personal revival is so important, as you say, Tom, because this will have reverberative effects, if I can say it that way, not only on our churches, but on our country. How would personal revival in our individual hearts potentially affect our nation if the Lord were to work another revival in us? Well, this is what the Lord showed me about two years ago, that he moves in light and light dispels darkness. So you can have a pin prick of light, and that's nothing but a person in Jesus' name helping someone at the grocery store who dropped their box. Now, a pin prick can develop into a pinpoint, and a pinpoint is someone whose life literally dispels darkness like a laser beam going through the day. And then there are pockets of light, real pockets of light, like committed churches or cell groups 
or people working in justice missions or human trafficking. And then there are passions of light where whole groups are so committed that they're sending out people to the mission field or they're going into the inner city or they're raising money for the poor. And then there are patterns of light where men and women burdened by God, not just organizing it on their own, like Hungary, I had the privilege of directing a crusade there before the Berlin Wall fell. But the whole nation of church came together, and we developed this organism that became a pattern of light that changed the nation. That's wonderful. So pinpricks, pinpoints, pockets, patterns, and passions. All important. Well, the great book is Ignite Your Passion for Jesus by Dr. Tom Phillips. Thank you so much, Tom, for being with us. Thank you, Janet. A privilege. Oh, thank you. God bless. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Remember when William J. Buckley Jr. famously said, I should sooner live in a society governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston Telephone Directory than in a society governed by the 2,000 faculty members of Harvard University? Well, if he were still alive today, there's no doubt that Buckley's opinion would remain the same. College campuses are not only overwhelmed and largely dictated by progressive political thought, but they've also become hotbeds for the suppression of ideas and free speech. What has this done to the entire endeavor of higher learning? And is there a solution to it? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. John Ellis, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of German Literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He founded the Association of Literary Scholars and Critics and served as president and now chairman of the board of the California Association of Scholars. And today we'll be talking about his book. It's called The Breakdown of Higher Education. Dr. Ellis, welcome. Great to have you. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, thank you. You know, a lot of us have been very appalled by a lot of the situations you've discussed in your book, these campus riots that we've seen, people like Charles Murray or Heather McDonald shouted down and attacked on college campuses. I'm curious how you view this situation in the broader context of the breakdown in higher education in general. Well, it's a very serious situation. I mean, parents and students are paying very large sums of money for higher education, and they're not getting it. Yeah. I mean, uh, higher education is something that always used to teach people to think for themselves, to look at problems, analyze them from different perspectives, understand them, break them down into different parts, and basically learn how to think productively in a, in a heightened way. That's yeah. what a higher education is for. That's not happening. In fact, the reverse is happening because now what you have is political radicals on campus who want students to stop thinking and, and just simply believe in their political ideology. So if a kid asks a question, a searching question about that political ideology in the classroom, he gets shut down. Yeah. Uh, because the, the political radicals who now uh, are in those classrooms running them don't want questions asked about socialism. They just want you to believe in it. So actually what's really happening is worse than 
kids not getting an education, it's worse than that. They're getting a miseducation. They're getting their thinking processes shut down. Yeah. That's true. It's a real scandal. It, yeah, it it's is. It's a terrible scandal. It is. You're absolutely right. And I thought it was very interesting that you said the censorship of ideas happens long before it becomes visible at events like these public lectures where these speakers are shouted down, which is why students have learned to shout these ideas down. So can you take us into the classroom a little bit and talk to people about what goes on in the classroom that kind of sets up the situation for the students to behave as they're behaving? Well, um, back up a little bit. I mean, the 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 prevailing standard of behavior for university professors always be that always used to be that they had to stay off politics in the classroom. Now, you know, there are there are laws in California, for example, where I teach. the The Constitution says the university must be kept free of, of politics hmm. and free of political influence. Now. In, when I was uh, just beginning teaching, people used to respect that. that you mustn't proselytize in classroom. You mustn't push your political ideas in the classroom. Now, that's, that's completely broken down, that consensus. Professors in the classroom are very free with their political ideas. So you can get people like, say, professor of mathematics. It's politics nothing to do with mathematics. They will rant on for five minutes at a time about their, their, their political ideas. No one stops them. Uh, you know, years ago, a dean, if he heard about this, a dean's job was to make sure that uh, no one was abusing the classroom. Right. Now, the deans hear about it, they look the other way. They know very well if they tried to stop it, they'd run into real trouble from the radical faculty uh, who would, um, you know, who would criticize them. Yes. So uh, it's very widespread. Um, the the campuses are now run by political ideologues. The majority are political ideologues. Kids can still find a good academic teacher if they look hard enough. Uh, but it's getting increasingly rare. Each year it gets worse because older professors retire. Mm-hmm. and are replaced by radicals. So the remaining good section uh, is getting smaller all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're currently up to something like uh, the left-right ratio on campus, something like 13 to 1 now. Goodness. Um, and it's getting bigger all the time. So, uh, And any time you get um, an overwhelming majority politically in one room, it gets more extreme. Sure. I mean, you know, if you put in, in the in the same room, people all agree with each other. Uh, pretty soon, they'll they'll reinforce each other's opinions, and their opinions get more and more and more extreme because there's nothing to correct. There's no one on the other side to say, you know, you're getting a little uh, out there. Yes, uh, that doesn't happen. Uh-huh. So the the brand of left politics you hear in university classrooms is way to the left of what you hear in public. 
It's awful. And you're right. People are forking over big bucks to send their kids to college and and they expect they're at least going to get a disciplined education. And yet that's what you're talking about in your book, that disciplined thinking is largely not taught where you're really trying to examine some of what the great thinkers of history have said and examining the evidence in any particular subject. And you're trying to let the evidence guide you in what you ought to embrace. And it's just not that way anymore. But what is it like for Anybody on the faculty who might disagree with the prevailing progressive thought, do, do they usually dare speak up, or what happens if they do? Well, they have real problems. I mean, the, the numbers are so small now um, of people who disagree that an awful lot of them just simply hide. I mean, I know on my own campus, I know a few people. Um, it's a sign of the times that I wouldn't give you their names. Right. Because their lives would be made intolerable if I did. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, no, they keep their heads down, and um, that's one of the signs of the, uh, the the sickness, that there is no open debate on campus. If someone speaks up in favor of, for example, uh, you know, the, the, the current Republican regime, uh, the, the uh, President Trump's uh, administration, they would have a very, very hard time with it on campus. I mean, mm-hmm. there would probably be a riot. Uh, there would probably be a demonstration against them. Um, there is no tolerance of other points of view. And, of course, where you have no tolerance, the, the main thing is, it's, forget the question of people being tolerant for, for a moment. You cannot have a discussion if, the, if in fact, one side is effectively shut down. No. So... Opinions, I mean, uh, issues, ideologies can't be examined. They can't be looked at. They can't be, uh, you know, sort of um, examined for their strengths and weaknesses. That's not possible because one side dominates, and that's that. There is going to be no discussion of its strengths and weaknesses because the controlling majority won't let that happen. Dr. Ellis, would you say that it is going too far to say that a lot of what the students are getting on college campuses today is not so much an education as much as it is just propaganda? I'm afraid that's true. You know, it's a horrible thing to say. I mean, of course, there there are classrooms. There's still the occasional professor who's old school. And if the students are clever enough to find them, then they'll get a decent education. Uh, The sciences, um, you know, you can still get decent classes in science for the moment anyway. uh, But the very strong science of the radicals are trying to colonize the the scientists as well. Um, But if you take... The uh, at least two thirds and probably more of classrooms, yeah, propaganda is not too serious a word to employ to describe what's going on. By which you mean simply that uh, the aim of the class is to inculcate a particular belief and not to analyze that belief or not to analyze any other beliefs. That's right. Not to analyze anything. That's right. That's right. And that's not supposed to be what education is. We're going to come back. Dr. John M. Ellis with us. And his book is called The Breakdown of Higher Education. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer today.
This is Janet Mafford for Bible League International. Jaime is an itinerant pastor in Ecuador. In Latin America, there, there are violence. Pastors and Christian workers uh, face with attackers, thieves, gangs. So that's the, that's the problem. Jaime will travel days by foot, boat, and mule. He's been beaten by warlocks, robbed, and suffered broken bones after falling in the Andes Mountains. What awaits him at the end of each trip? A thriving congregation of hundreds of believers in an area where Christianity is fiercely opposed. When I share Jaime's story, I recall Isaiah 6, 8. Whom shall I send? Who will go? I believe this man is enduring more than some pastors ever will. And like others in the world where Bibles are desperately needed, Jaime is humbly asking us to send God's word. For only $5, you can send a Bible to Latin America and around the world, and a special match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. When this young mom came into a preborn center, she had decided that abortion was the best choice as she was coming out of an abusive relationship. But after meeting her baby on ultrasound and feeling the love and support she needed from the preborn staff, she knew life was the best choice. The ultrasound, I was in shock. I knew I was pregnant, but seeing it on the screen was a completely different ball game. Honestly, without you, I don't think I would have my little boy. He's so healthy and he's so sweet and I'm so grateful every day. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 855-402-BABY. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back. It's hard to believe that when you look back in history, the free speech movement began where? At UC Berkeley. And now it's the place where free speech is suppressed. And that's the case across the country at a lot of our institutions of higher learning. Dr. John M. Ellis is with us. The Breakdown of Higher Education is his book. And we're talking about what has gone wrong in higher education. Dr. Ellis, one of the things, I mean, it's such a great book. You go into so many different details that that will be very important for people to read and understand. But when you're talking about how we got here. You trace it through a number of different situations. We think of the Vietnam War era. We think of the rise of, you know, what happened in the 60s. But you also talk about the rise of identity politics and diversity rather than excellence becoming something that is stressed. Can you speak a little bit to the problems that have been, you know, growing over the last several decades that got us to where we are now? Well, the, there's no doubt that there, there, there are two big things that uh, allowed higher education to go wrong. One was the massive expansion after the Second World War. You know, people's lives were interrupted by the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And when soldiers came back from the war, they started families. And so there was what we call the baby bulge, right? The, yes. the, 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 the tremendous amount of new births. 45 to 1945 to 50. And so about 1965, that that baby boom hit college age. And um, the result was that higher education, public higher education had to more than double in size. Now, when you suddenly have a demand for new professors to be hired, and and the demand is actually 
greater than the number of the existing professors. So you take the, take the number of all the existing professors in the nation, and then you've got to double that overnight almost. But very difficult to do uh, to, and keep quality up. Now, but what was appalling was that ex- that was exactly the moment when the Vietnam War roiled the, the campuses. Mm. And so there was a great deal of left radicalism promoted by the d- discontent among students over the Vietnam War. So at exactly the time that you needed massive numbers of new professors, the people you were going to have to hire from were mainly radical. Mm. It was a horrible, horrible historical accident. Mm. And undoubtedly, that's the main reason why we're in the mess we're in today. But then identity politics continued that um, because once you start to, you know, hire people, not because they're first-rate scholars, but because they fill some identity niche, you know, you need more people of a certain kind, uh, whether, um, you know, ethnic minorities or, or women. Once you start to do hiring by that, you have an eye on something that's not academic excellence and that automatically weakens what you're doing but it was actually worse than that because it because the people who are clamoring for more black professors more women professors the people doing the clamoring were actually radicals themselves (laughs) and they tended to take charge of the hiring so they hired so basically it was an excuse to hire more radicals yeah right and that's what really happened uh, and the combined effect of these two things meant that um, oh, by about the year uh, 1990, you already had a very, very strong leftist uh, control of, of the campuses. And people often say, well, you know, uh, the, the left is always at home in the university. It's always that way. But that actually is not true. Hmm. Back in about 1965, you had something like uh, three to two preponderance of left versus right. So, you know, you've always had a, in the past, you always had a healthy debate between the left and the right on, on the campuses. Yes. Uh, but but in a pretty short time, about a 30-year span, what you had was an overwhelming majority of the left, and not just the left, the radical left. Yes. And the radical left has no conscience. Mm. You know, I mean, liberals do have a conscience. Uh, they really want to see a, a literate society and a, a humane uh, um, society. Radicals are, are, are people for whom the creation of their leftist utopia is so important that nothing else matters. And so you can abuse any institution you like. I mean, you can use the universities to do things with the universities that will destroy them. But provided you get to the radical utopia, it's all justified. And that's why radicals are so dangerous, and they now run the the campuses. Well, they do. They do. And you've got all these new generations of students coming up, and a lot of them come from more conservative homes. And then conservative parents like we, uh, we think, you know, in our home, what, where do we send our kids? What do we do? We want to get them into a place where they can actually have this kind of education with disciplined thinking and learn how to, you know, work through particular, um, you know, historical situations and evaluate the way they really were, as opposed to the spin that, you know, Howard Zinn sort of material would 
would put on whatever oh. happened in history. But th- this is a this is a problem though because I, I talk to a lot of parents who say I don't know where to send my kids, and and it is an arm and a leg. But if you don't go to college, how will you ever get a good job? And I do believe in you know educating children anyway, and educating college students is an important part of life. How do we fight back against this? Is is it all lost, or shall we shall we deal with it in a more forthright way? What do you suggest? Well, the first step is for parents across the country to come to the realization that they are not getting the education they're paying for. And that's the first step for people to understand that. I mean, sure, we all want our kids given a higher education, but we've got to grasp the fact that they are not being given that. Right. And they are not coming out, after four years, they are not coming out with the skills that they used to have, so that there is no point in sending them to college. Hmm. Uh, they get a diploma, but but people are increasingly skeptical about the value of those diplomas. So, hmm. so I think what needs to be done is uh, across the country. I mean, the 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 citizenry of this country has to face up to the fact that higher education now is a disaster, and they have to demand that something be done about it. Um, and they themselves have got to um, stop paying for, stop funneling money to support this massive fraud that's going on. Yes, because they, it is a fraud. I mean, in any walk of life where you give money for one purpose, and the person you're giving it to takes it and uses it for something completely different, that's called embezzling. Yeah. You know? That's yes. what's happening. <laughs> right. That's what's happening. That's true. And parents, I think parents are the ones who've got to wake up to the fact that this is nonsense. They're spending enormous amounts of money and their kids are spending you know, several years of their lives for nothing. They're not getting what they're paying for. Well. Once, once the, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the fact that once the universities see their funding threatened, once they see their jobs threatened um, by the realization from, from parents that this is not working, there is some chance of reform. But, but, but for people to keep feeding this beast, to keep funneling money into the same, same pursuits as if it was the same kind of education that we got 50 years ago, uh, if they keep doing that, they're, what they're doing is um, they're enabling the present academic establishment to keep doing what it's doing, which is not what we want. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, and the problem is, I know from a journalism journalism background, what happens is not a lot of conservatives go into journalism. And it seems that in academia, the same problem is there that people who might be more conservative or might, you know, even classically liberal and committed to the principles of disciplined thinking may look at academia and say, I don't want to enter that cesspool. I mean, isn't that part of the problem, too, that people who might be better at being you know, in the scholarship area and in the teaching arena, hesitate to go into higher education circles because exactly of what you've been talking about with the radical leftism, they don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Well, I know several people who who take one look at what's going on and decide they don't want a career in higher education. Uh, you know, I had a friend uh, a few years back who uh, was settling into an academic career. This was about 20 years ago and noticed what was going on around him and abruptly changed course and went into business. And he was potentially a brilliant academic. He just couldn't see a future for himself 
on a college campus dominated by political radicals. Yeah, you can't And it probably, it. from his point of view, that was smart. But what it means is that the the process of the radicals taking over is uh, assisted by the choices being made by more conservative people who, who look at this and are revolted by it and don't want any part of it. You're right about that. Well, it is a great book. It's called The Breakdown of Higher Education by Dr. John M. Ellis, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of German Literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Loved your book, Dr. Ellis, and it was so kind of you to be with us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me and for your kind words about my book. Oh, you're very welcome. It's really a great resource, and thanks again for being here. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today, and we will see you next time. God bless. This hour of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by Heart for Lebanon. Call 888-247-5499 to give desperate people help and the hope of the gospel. 888-247-5499.